Supplying parts to the U.S. Department of Defense is a topic that's intrigued me for a while. Sometimes machining companies tell us they have long-running lucrative jobs supplying parts to the DOD, and it's always seemed a little mysterious to me. What were these parts they were supplying to the government? How does a company get to be a supplier to the DOD? And is supplying parts to the U.S. government a good idea for a small to medium-sized machining company? I got some answers from today's guest on the show, Mike Topoleski Jr. Mike is Vice President of Sales and Operations at Perigee Manufacturing Company in Detroit, Michigan. Perigee is a three-generation screw machine and CNC shop with a specialty in fasteners. And the DOD has been a significant customer of theirs for decades. This is Swarfcast, the podcast for professionals in precision machining. I'm your host, Noah Graff. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am very honored to be with Mike Topoleski Jr., Vice President of Sales and Operations at Perigee Manufacturing Company in Michigan. Welcome to the show, Mike. Good afternoon, Noah. How are you? I'm very good now that I'm talking to you. We've known Mike and his company a little while at Kraft Pinkert, and um, they they run screw machines, a lot of Acmes. I'm going to let him explain uh, more of what they do. And we're going to delve into being a defense supplier today. Uh, this is something that I've actually been quite intrigued with and we haven't covered before. So first, just to get started, please tell everybody what Perigee Manufacturing is. Tell us just a brief overview, what you guys make, uh, a little bit of history. Yeah, so uh, established 1965 by my grandfather, Patrick Topoleski. Uh, We are a third generation business. Uh, I'm fourth generation in the industry. My great-grandfather had a fairly large uh, fastener manufacturing operations that started in the late teens, early 20s, 1920s. So a fair amount of our family uh, was employed in those operations. And then World War II happened. The the company shut down. There were, I believe, my great-grandfather had uh, seven, seven sons and a daughter. They all came back from the war and they started another company. So the first one was Top Screw and Nut. The second one is Popular and Special. And that went until the 60s. 
And then my great grandfather passed away and, and all of his sons uh, got involved in, in other businesses, three or four of which were in the fast fastener or manufacturing industry. And my grandfather, Patrick, in the 1960s started Perigee in a very small you know, 3,000 square foot facility with a Model G Gridley and uh, probably a two and a quarter four spindle and uh, a couple other pieces of equipment. And we've grown from there. So now we have over 20 uh, multi-spindles, Acme Gridleys. We have uh, eight CNC turning centers and lathes and, and a, a whole bunch of secondary uh, equipment in our operations. We about 27,000 square feet of our facility. Nice. So you're still running a lot of Acmes. It's still an important part of your business. Absolutely. Yes. In fact, we are, uh, we're growing. Our Acme count is growing. We've certainly upgraded and, you know, scrapped some of the older ones and, and been able to upgrade with attachments and newer machines and such. And Mike was flirting with some interesting one inches we had recently. He was, he was petting the merchandise and for one reason or another, they had to hold them right there. Yeah, that was tempting. Uh, we uh, acquired two Miano twin spindle, twin turret uh, turning centers that... Uh, oh, you don't need those. They, you, yeah. you need some, some good old-fashioned cast iron. Well, I'm a proponent of that, uh, certainly. And, and there are more in our future. Uh, we, do, we are on a growth phase here. Those are, those are some sexy machines, those Miano twin turret machines. They are. Yeah, they're, they're nice. They're nice. Okay, cool. So tell us what are some of the sectors that you make stuff for and, and what are some of the exact parts? So you make fasteners. Yeah. So uh, fasteners are in everything, right? Fasteners, nuts and bolts hold the world together. Uh, we certainly don't just make nuts and bolts, but you know there are you know, automotive, automotive aftermarket, heavy truck, defense, aerospace, marine, construction, agricultural, uh, oil and gas, and, and we serve all of those markets to certain extents. But again, you know, these components are in everything. So we're fortunate in that sense to have a pretty broad base in our customers of customers. So we're not, we're not beholden to one particular industry, although we, you know, we have our preferences in, in what we do, but certainly it served us well over the years. Ironically enough, uh, you know, we're located in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, historically, we haven't done a whole lot of direct automotive work. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that can be some real cutthroat stuff. And it seems like some of our customers have tried to get away from that, too. So what percentage of your business is automotive? A uh, small amount, 10, 15 percent. That sounds good. It, it can be a race to the bottom. My grandfather was pretty wise in, in dealing with that and not getting heavily involved in, in the auto industry. You know, it, it seems to be a bit of feast or famine and the relationships between uh, the tier ones and the tier twos, the tier twos and tier threes is, is not exactly one that is, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a long-term, uh, it's not mutually beneficial long-term or, or it can devolve. Yeah, uh, that stinks. Yeah, so... So yes, we do have exposure to that to, to the automotive, but uh, but we we have exposure to many other. Is it hard to compete with Chinese sources with uh, like making the more simple fasteners? Sure, sure. Uh, most of those were offshore years ago, and uh, you know only recently have we seen a reshoring effort 
and and we've certainly seen it as well. Uh, parts coming back. I think there's some models out there that it's not just the purchase price. You know, you have to, you know, you got logistics, and we certainly know what the cost of logistics. You know, what has happened over these pandemic years, and if you could even get components over, or if they were if they ended up in the ocean. So, uh, you know, customers have you know, have realized that and have come back and presented some opportunities. And, you know, the cost might be close or maybe maybe the domestic source is, is a bit higher, but there's a little more certainty or there should be a lot more certainty in terms of the source of supply, the relationship, which we're very big, big in and uh, and quality. So, you know, that dynamic has changed and, and the industry and we have seen some efforts to reshore some of these components that were that left. Okay, so so this is interesting that you've got some background in a lot of sectors, and now I want to delve into being a defense supplier because I just think you know supplying to the government, our government is pretty interesting. I suppose every government is interesting, but you know you have this interesting combination of public sector and private sector that yeah, it makes for an interesting chemistry. Let's just take it from the beginning. You've been doing some defense contracting for, what, 20 years? Directly for 20 years, indirectly for many more, which is a different, and I can talk about that, but yes, we've, okay. we've, we've been awarded governments from the DOD or the DLA, Defense Logistics Agency, for over 20 years. Interesting. So first, what got that started? I, my, my assumption is you were presented with a certain opportunity and that was the, the beginning of it. Or had it been something where you were going, damn, I heard those defense contractors, those are lucrative. I got to get me in on that. It was a bit of a natural progression for the company. You know, again, because fasteners and turn components are in everything, many of the same or similar fasteners are in, in defense components, uh, vehicles, aircraft, just right from the very top, the United States government's budget, they, they spend $6 trillion. I believe that, I believe those are 2022 numbers is probably higher than that. Certainly every year it goes up. Tremendous spending power. Okay. The DOD budget, I believe for fiscal year 2023 is on the order of $800 billion. It, it's a staggering amount of money. And when they say they're decreasing spending, all they mean is they're decreasing the amount of increase. That is the, the typical Washington speak. Yeah. So if, if they're uh, moaning about cuts, yes, it's typically a reduction in the rate of increase that's already either baked in or appropriated. Uh, wow, which that is, is so it's such BS. They're trying, you know, they're totally fooling everybody. They're making everybody think, oh, we were spending 800,000 or 800 billion before and and now we're only spending 700 but no it's it might mean we're spending 850 rather than increasing the 900 i i thought that's so fascinating yeah it's a little sleight of hand i guess yeah sleight of hand or sleight of language okay so it was a natural progression because there's a lot of things that have fasteners in it you know maybe like vehicles humvees airplanes so what was the first thing? What was the catalyst that got you to start doing this? So I mentioned we had done indirect prior to being certified as a defense contractor. So we have been making defense components for many years, almost for our, exist, our full existence, 55 plus years. 
we became aware of the opportunity to become a direct defense contractor, which can be a very daunting path. It's not straightforward, so to speak. There are multiple steps and multiple departments you have to go through uh, to get certified, so to speak, to do defense work. Now, the, the one thing, the one caveat I'll say is, you know, we're fastener, precision turn component manufacturer. The way that we do business can be very different than a service provider to the Department of Defense or to another agency. So some of these things that that are relevant to us in our industry certainly won't apply to other defense or, or government contractors. It's It can be a very circuitous path doing business with the government. And it, it is, as I said, it's very daunting. So, so it was a bit of a natural progression from indirect, seeing the opportunity indirect, getting certified, getting the, the appropriate things in place, which really had already been in place. We're, uh, what were you what were you indirectly supplying? I mean, it was fasteners, but to what were the fasteners going into? The, really the same end, end items that we are right now. It just would go through uh, an intermediary, an intermediary, a distributor, a certified distributor or, or another entity. And, and we still do that. I, you know, we still still certainly supply why would you want to do that rather than go directly and get a better margin? Well, that's a great question. Why give something to somebody else? Yeah, no, it, it's a very good when question. You can, when you can just take all the pie. <laughs> <laughs> well, because those guys find you the contracts. Is that part of the reason why? You know, the value added of a, of a distribution company, you were a manufacturing company. I, although I consider ourselves a stocking manufacturer, we certainly do stock and release many items. We are a manufacturer through and through. And the distribution houses are very good. They've got, they have relationships, they've got contacts, and we certainly do too. You know, it's, they're not mutually exclusive, okay? Doing direct work with the DLA or DOD, you know, isn't necessarily exclusive of the work we do with with this distributors that has continued and, and it's even grown. So it, it, I think it's just a, a value added proposition. It's something that can be provided. A st- you know, our ability to to inventory and stock items is probably not certainly not as great as a, a, a larger distributor who who has a better handle and maybe has other buyers for those same components. So just to understand exactly what you're talking about and probably most of the people listening to this do understand these distributors, these guys stock a bunch of parts. They have a huge invent building with inventory where they're stocking the stuff. Exactly. Yes. I see. They're doing so based on several factors, demand and, and, and such, and they have economies of scale that we may not have. So we're, we're a manufacturer and, you know, we're good at what we do. Uh, but there, there's certainly a need and, and a value for distribution. We have very good relationships with distributors. So it's not um, all or nothing, so to speak. Okay. Well, how do you get certified? So you want to maybe get past this distributor and, and get to deal directly. Is it something kind of like getting you know, some other ISO for medical or aerospace? Or is there some other kind of thing that uh, this entails? It's definitely a process. It's a multi-step process. First steps are getting registered with the uh, with the federal government, uh, getting issued a code, a cage code, so to speak, and and that is done. You know, there's a process to that. So, you, you what get, is a cage code? I believe the acronym stands for Corporate and Government Entity, C A G E. 
Uh, our cage is 1X, 4X, 7. That is assigned to our company. That stays with our company. And when you bid on contracts and you are awarded contracts, that is public record. That information is is available to the public. It's available to anybody to see which entity was awarded what. And so if, if that- And con- normally, if you're normally some other kind of contract, some other sector, this is just, that's confidential or could be. Exactly, which is a big difference, right? You know, that that is uh, it's an interesting wrinkle to the procurement. That's interesting because you'd think the government would be all about being secretive. You would think. So you were you you got this certification about 20 years ago. Tell me, how, how long did it take? And was would you say it was difficult? It was complicated? A lot of bureaucracy? I wouldn't say it was necessarily difficult. It was a long process. It was a multi-step process. So, you know, there, there's a, quite a bit of paperwork and, and checking, background checking. Are, are we a viable corporation? You know, are there any possible debarment? Uh, you know, verification of that. And then at that, at that time, this was the early 2000s, we had a visit from the local uh, DCMA, Defense Contract Management Agency branch, and their job is to administer contracts and do verification. So they came in and did a, a full, multiple full audits of our company. We had already been, you know, ISO certified and had various certifications, but theirs is different. Is that is that important to have before you even get theirs, or do they not look, look at that? They, they do. Uh, ISO nine thousand one, for instance, is 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 a big basis of their of their requirements. Which one is ISO 9000? I always forget. Yeah, that's what they ISO are. 9001 general, you know, general certification for you know, manufacturing can apply to many different uh, manufacturing or other entities. Uh, we're also AS 9100 certified, which is aerospace. That's a different thing altogether. Uh, but the, the government's is separate. They have their own. And do you have to be regular aerospace certified in order to do aerospace for the government? Uh, that depends. So quite a few of the items procured in the defense procurement channels end up in an aerospace application. That is different than an end user OEM aerospace like Boeing or Airbus or, or what have you. So sometimes we don't have good visibility on that. You know, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer, but it, they are separate. Uh, the government does procure things for helicopters and aircraft, which we which we supply. We supply, uh, you know, flight and, and critical fasteners that are safety critical. Okay. And on on things like that, I suppose this may be the same for commercial. Uh, are there certain components where it has to come from the United States? Yeah. So there are there are several iterations of Buy America Act that apply, and this is on a contract basis. So. Again, a textile manufacturer supplying textiles to the government, there, there are different rules in place for them as compared to us supplying a, a slotted, a castellated nut that goes into a helicopter that holds the, the blades onto the aircraft so, or on, onto the helicopter. So it really depends the procurement channel. There's some wrinkles there, so, so to speak, right? Thank you to everybody listening to this. It gives me a real sense of purpose, knowing that people feel they get a lot of value out of the show, enough value at least to take the time to listen. Likely some serendipitous occurrence caused you to discover Swarfcast, and I know it might get tiring with me constantly talking about serendipity, but 
It's just on my mind a lot lately. You might have saw a promo for the show on social media or a coworker told you about it. In any case, if you know of somebody out there who would get some value out of the show, I'd like you to return the favor that you received once upon a time and spread the word. That's the only way others are going to find out about it. Back to the episode. You were saying um, when we were preparing for this... uh, that if you were to do this now, it might be a little smoother if you use something called a, a PTAC. Can you explain that? Sure. Sure. So there are agencies set up, and I believe they're backed by the, by the federal or, and or state government, to assist contractors with existing contracts. So they're an existing defense contractor. They may have an issue with a contract. These contracts are very, very long. They're not one or two pages. You know, there are a lot of uh, what they call flow down clauses that apply. I'm assuming you hired somebody when you did this. We've grown and we've we've hired people and added people. We've learned a lot as we've done this business, and I think that's the main thing. The main takeaway is it it is a it is a learning process. The government is so big, and there there is a tremendous bureaucracy. These PTACs, for instance, can be a very helpful resource. But you don't use them. You have your own internal people. Uh, We haven't had the need to use them, but they are available if we needed to. So maybe if it was a new job and there just seemed to be a lot of rigmarole, you might tap that. Sure. Sure. And and it's available. uh, And I believe it's nationwide. So so the PTAC is is there to assist the, the contractor in the process. Interesting. Okay. So you've gotten certified. You've gone through some of the rigmarole. Now I want to know some of the ins and outs. You want to get a job and, you know, you can give an example of one. I want to know what the process is like. And I'd like to know a little comparison to just bidding on a job in the private sector. Okay. So what are, what, give me an example of, so, you, I mean, you've given me an example of some of the things you you do. You do uh, some aerospace, maybe some automotive. You don't do any weapons for them, do you? Any not weapons, but gun parts, or you know, again, fasteners are in in firearms and and such. But you know, you know what the stuff's going into, or do they just say I need a certain amount of nuts, <laughs> and then they they don't tell you? Uh, it depends. It depends. Uh, sometimes okay. Sometimes so so well. sometimes it's not so transparent. Uh, that's true. Yeah, it's true. And there are certain uh, requirements and additional clearances that are needed to look at the the drawing and the data set. Uh, there are certain rights guards programs in place. So just because someone is, uh, has gone through the gauntlet of, of becoming, uh, you know, getting a cage code and, and bidding on government work and getting contracts, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are, they have visibility in all this. And we've had to do that. We've had to get these, these additional certifications. So it, it does, we don't always know the end use of the item. Uh, many times we do, but many, there are many times we don't. How do you feel about that? Do you wish you knew all the time? Do you really don't care? Yes, as as it's... you know, it, it's it's interesting. I, I, I do think about that. And uh, we've made, you know, millions of, of fasteners and turn components. And, you know, I can't sit here and tell you I know where everyone has gone. My grandfather had a saying, he, he did not have an intention to go into business to put a nut on every bolt because we were a predominant nut manufacturer. And that still rings true. But uh, it, it is interesting 
And we, we make some pretty cool, interesting things that go into very critical end uses within the military and other industries, but we don't always know. And, and that's not necessarily important from a manufacturing or quality standpoint. Uh, what is important is knowing the contract requirements, it's critical, these flow down clauses that do apply. What's important is knowing the part requirements, okay? And then the supplementary requirements, packaging, these parts have to be packaged and RFID barcoded and, and certain, with certain packaging requirements to the various depots in the United States. And sometimes, you know, through foreign military sales to other friendly nations. So do they have guys coming in and looking over your shoulder? Who, who's that? Does the gov send in people that are looking over your shoulder? Oh, sure. Because... Sure. Yeah. So uh, depending on the contract, uh, it can be administered by the the local DCMA office, Defense Contract Management Agency. And so they will come in and they will they have the right to come in at any time and, and review that contract and and ensure that though they do like a turn test on your parts or they've done just about everything. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so they are an entity that, which is good. I'm glad that they're doing that. Well, as a taxpayer, I would agree. Uh, you know, these are taxpayer dollars and, you know, as a taxpayer, I want to make sure it's being spent wisely and, uh, right. want to make some sure making the parts. Well, yeah. absolutely. Uh, you know, protecting the warfighter is important and, uh, making critical components on aircraft and vehicles that could result, their failure that could result in loss of life, we take very seriously. So so I am happy that certain barriers are in place, certain verifications and audits are in place to ensure that the product conforms to what the, the, the uh, military... Uh, how do the auditors from that compare to the private sector people or say... I bet you, autom- I'm guessing automotive people are some of the most annoying. It's a mixed bag. Uh, we've, we've had... Mm-hmm. Uh, quite, well, it probably depends on the part, too. It does, and, and the individual auditor. Uh, some of the DCMA auditors have come from, obviously come from private, uh, you know, automotive and engineering backgrounds. So that information is helpful and, and, you know, having a, a working knowledge, you know, the knowledge base in the industry, but it's, it's been a mixed bag of, uh, of characters and, and auditors. I wouldn't say entirely different from other industries. It's just, diff- it's just different in the process, in the, the requirements, the clauses. And there's certainly some overlap. Uh, they use, okay. they use best practices, uh, you know, as compared to ISO 9001 and TS 16949 or IATF 16949 or AS9100. So, uh, it's different, but it's not entirely different. What's the difference? There, there are a lot of intricacies. Uh, th- there's similarities in all those standards. Doing work with the Defense Department, as I mentioned, these contracts are much longer. So, right, because that's and that's one of the things I want to just get into soon, just about the contracts and bidding on it. But go on it. Yeah. So before we get to that, by, just by that very nature of being a very long twenty thirty. 40 page contract. Uh, and that contract could be a, for a, you know, a small quantity of, of parts. Uh, and that's more pages than a normal one. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that contract has many, many clauses and DFAR clauses and certain requirements that, you know, you talk about cybersecurity, safeguarding data, 
record keeping and you name it. There are so many, so many different requirements that are flowed down to the contractor that you really need to have very good working knowledge of these. So I would say that's a big process. And again, that contract can be for a small quantity of parts and and maybe not even a, a, a big dollar amount. So you have to make sure you have the good working knowledge of these requirements. You have to be, you know, fully understand it and you have to uh, do it in a timely fashion and make sure you're meeting all of those. So that's quite different than from an automotive or a, or a heavy truck or a different uh, end user contract. All right. So it must mean, you know, for people to do this stuff, it must mean they, it can be quite interesting. Okay. Tell me about uh, the bidding process and, and then the length of the contracts, because that's a little different from some of the other things, correct? Yeah. So the bidding. Process, so why don't you do? Yeah, yeah. Combine those two because that seems like they're intertwined. The bidding process and the length of the contract. Is that which? Yeah. yeah, I mean, and all the other details. I'm sure there's a lot of other important things. Sure. So the bidding process uh, for us, for our industry, is typically done on a on a bid board. Uh, there are several procurement boards that the, the government uses to disseminate the solicitations. Okay. And you need to have, you know, the credentials and the access to these portals. So you, you go in there and you see what the government is looking for and you review these solicitations, which can be as long or longer than the contract sometimes. And then you, you enter your bid, you know, via that portal. Uh, so, and there, like I said, there are several of them that are, that are out there and, and they're different again, depending on the type of commodity that's being purchased. So, you know, that's different. We're not, although we do get emails from uh, the various, uh, you know, Army, Navy, et cetera, and, and from the Defense Logistics Agency, predominantly it's through bid boards. We're bidding on contracts that are typically for a discrete number of parts with a specific delivery date requirement. Okay. Now, okay. there are different contracts and different solicitations that what's an example of a quantity you might have like a range uh i mean obviously you're screw machine people so you're making a lot i'm sure we are uh and we have eight uh, cnc machines and and those are running low volumes as well so a one piece Mm -hmm. uh, you know back in war in afghanistan war in iraq uh there were there were times where we were making very small quantities and they were immediately sent out uh, overseas to to the troops, uh, so as, as few as one and as many as you know hundreds of thousands. So it, it's a full range, and, and it's just based upon what their needs are. Okay, so it's sort of an automated thing. Somebody's not just calling you on the phone and going, "Mike, we're doing a, a covert mission, and we need X for you know our our secret weapon." Like, I mean, this is more like, you know, there, there's a computerized system and you're, and you're bidding to see. Correct. Yeah. So it's entered, it's entered that way. So once you enter your bid, um, you are uh, notified via email or via the portal if you're awarded this business and, and you're also notified if you aren't. Again, it's public record, right? So. And it's total uh, guessing game, right? So like. You know, they need 100,000 nuts and you calculate what you can do and your time study or whatever. But this is something 
that I'm from, from what I do, I don't, I just don't know about, like you could, you could be quite aggressive, right. And say, Hey, I'm going to make 50 cents apart rather than do 10 cents apart. And you don't know whether you're going to make it. It may, you may actually be able to get a really good, something really interesting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, so again, you, you can see previous contract history for that particular part. Oh, okay. That's helpful. You have a general idea of, of the, the market value maybe not current value, especially through the pandemic and supply chain issues because, you know, cost structures have changed, but you have an idea and, uh, you know, you certainly know you have an idea if, if you're going to be somewhat competitive, you know, we certainly don't, we're not going to be bidding on there. There's so there are too many things out there to bid on. You have to be selective and you have to know what your strengths are, what you're competitive at and go after that. Do you sometimes um, like look at stuff, and you you know you've got these acmes that can crank parts out, and you go, ha! I know these been running these on CNC weights. I'm just going to crush it. Do you do you oh, see that? Absolutely. You know our company. We we've always done that. We typically don't. I wouldn't say always. There are times where we drop parts complete off our screw machines, but I would say a predominance of the parts that we manufacture on our screw machines are not drop complete. Right. But even even when you do that, you could still crush something coming oh, sure. from so do you do you run into that quite a bit in these defense contracts you you look at the previous procurement history and you, you start to think you know that number looks kind of funky you know is is am i missing something but the only question is is some other screw machine guy coming at it at the same time you don't know it's awarded to one entity you don't know all the other bids that are going on you don't know the way they're manufacturing it is that any different from bidding on something not with the government that part is not okay obviously there are the obvious barriers to entry to doing defense work uh you know getting registered going through these various steps um many companies don't have the patience or the the wherewithal or the uh, the metal. So you're saying there's less, one advantage of it is there's less competition, possibly. Yes, th- there is. And and for, for those reasons, but also for the reasons of, uh, you know, the length of these contracts and the requirements that are forced upon that, that are forced upon the contractor, you know, yes, making the parts may be the same, whether it's for a defense end use and for a, an automotive, but Again, that contract has many, many clauses that may have costs associated with them to our company. So what's, what's an example of a clause? Well, one, one obvious difference are, are packaging requirements. You know, if you're, bidding on, if you're bidding on these contracts, you know, they don't want them just in a box and, and, and shipped to the depot. They, they have to be sometimes individually bagged. And some of these bags are, are expensive, uh, protected bags, and they have RFID enabled labels and barcodes. And so, you know, that's an obvious one. Cybersecurity is another, uh, you know, we're required to have certain uh, cybersecurity measures in place uh, in order to do these, to, to bid on these contracts. That's a, there's a tremendous cost with that. The, the, the administrative cost of digesting and understanding a, four, a 30 or 40 page contract can be pretty high. So, over the years, there are these, these examples of of the you know five hundred dollar hammer. I don't know if that's the price that was used, but they used it as an example to show that the government is spending a tremendous amount of money for a very basic commodity. And and I believe that there's certainly waste, fraud, and abuse and inefficiencies there. I'm that's not my argument. 
But the, the other side of that is that there are some very real requirements in these contracts that, that, can, that can be very costly to manufacture these parts. So any company that wants to do business with the government has to be very, has to tread lightly under and understand those. And those are barriers to entry. Many companies simply say, I'm not willing to do this. I'm not willing to retain the paperwork, the certifications for the life of the program. In the case of a B-52 bomber, that, that program started in the early 1950s and it's still going. Yeah. You can imagine these costs start to add up. See, so, I picture the government though, and I picture them like sometimes just being silly and not really having, you know, as you said, several, how, how many billion? Three trillion? The federal government budget is over six trillion. The defense department budget is 800 billion. Okay. So they have 800 billion. I can imagine you know, there being certain things that they're just like, yeah, get me these. And they may not be quite as crazy about the negotiation as, say, GM. Am I wrong? Not at all. You know, you're, you're right. Uh, there, there are immediate needs. The previous example I used dur- during the... Oh, so because there's immediate needs, that cuts through some of this nitpicky bargaining over a cent thing because it's like, we need this contract, get this done now. Absolutely. Yeah, there are times, and they can be very clear about it, where delivery supersedes price. Mm-hmm. So in those types of contracts, and that that's in play. And so it, it's a very interesting process. It's, it, it is different in that sense that, that, you know, price is important, quality is critical, obviously. But if there's an immediate need, they'll supersede that, or, or I won't say supersede that, it's a second order priority. So when when they're when they send you the thing and you're bidding on it, is there like a box you check? Like, not only I can do it for this price and I, I can get it to you this time. That's one of the things that you bid on. Correct. You you are bidding on at a spe- specific unit price and a specific time frame that you will deliver those parts. Is that the same as the private sector? It's similar. Uh, these solicitations, the ones that we bid on, typically tell you how many days and how many days they want the parts. It may or may not be feasible. It could be five days, and this could be a ninety-day, ninety-day lead time. Yes. Right. So it's similar, but you do know you do they they do give you, and there are priorities. There's a I believe it's DPAS. There's a priority listing if this is a an immediate need due to a priority within the army or, or one of the, the branches, uh, they will raise that up and uh, the delivery is going to be critical. on. Tell that. me uh, what, what are your favorite parts of doing the defense and um, supplier and your least favorites? So we make a fair amount of parts that uh, go into various vehicle platforms uh, within the military you know, we take pride in, in supporting and protecting the warfighter if these, these parts are critical to their safety. I think that's pretty cool, too. I mean, you it gives you a nice sense of purpose knowing that the parts are going towards, you know, protecting our country. Yes. Yeah, we, we take that very seriously and, and we take pride in that. And, uh, you know, least favorite parts. Uh, there are some very challenging parts. Um I can I appreciate a challenge, and we certainly do at our company from a manufacturing standpoint. Our our capabilities continue to grow. Sounds like the paper the paperwork is one of the more blah uh, least favorite things. 
there, there you go. I would say paperwork is that's number one is uh, at the bottom of the barrel. Anything else that's the bottom of the barrel, or is that's that's clearly the bottom? Well, no, I can I can tell you another positive is that federal government pays very well and they pay on time. And if they don't, you get interest. That's that makes sense. It's just one of the things that would motivate people to do it. Reliability that makes total sense. It's critical. It's important, and they they pay well. But you know the defense industrial base in this country is critical to the national security of this country, and they take that very seriously. Uh, the relationships are different, right? As a defense contractor to the D- Department of Defense, as compared to as an automotive supplier to an automotive company, okay. It's very different, and, and there has been a lot of talk over the years. Are we, as a country, making sure that the defense industrial base is, is, is supported? Obviously, we just went through a pandemic and supply chain issues and inflation continues. It's been very difficult for a lot of companies to navigate these things. If these defense contractors go away, and especially critical ones, and they're a sole source provider to the uh, federal government, then we have a real issue. And some of these platforms, for instance, the B-52 and the, the A-10 Warthog, these are, these are platforms that have gone way back. And many of those contractors are not around anymore. So this is one of the important things that they do is to ensure. And, you know, they can do a better job of it, but, but it's important, right? Mike, thank you so much. This was really fun. And uh, I really appreciate it. I learned things. Thank you, Noah. I appreciate it. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. 